Hey guys, today on your faves faves, I am sitting down with Tony Hawk, skateboarder, legend, icon, 40 year career, Tony Hawk, and he is sharing his top five favorite injuries. I think I gagged a little like 20 times during this interview, but also surprisingly motivational. We talk about business and chasing dreams and what it means to be committed to excellence, even when it's painful. If you enjoy this episode of Your Faves Faves, take a screenshot, tag me, tag Tony on social, and let us know what you think. Hi, I'm Rachel Hollis, and this is Your Faves Faves. I have been skating for about 43 years almost. And I wish I could say that's my whole life, but I started when I was nine years old. So the first injury and probably the most prominent and the one that affected me the, the worst or the most was uh, breaking my pelvis. And I did that in 2004. So oh, um, <laughs> this whole podcast, I'm going to be like swallowing convulsively okay so what's the scenario how did this happen so i was in my late 30s already had already had you know a lot of success skating and we were shooting an episode of wild boys which is was sort of a jackass spinoff so it was it was um chris pontius and steve-o did a show that was more about uh nature <laughs> and lots of stunts and so I uh, did it because they had a they had an orangutan that knew how to skateboard, and they asked if if I would be on the same episode as the orangutan. So we showed up to this ramp where they brought the orangutan. It's my friend's ramp, and he and I did a little bit of skating with the orangutan. Is Bob Burnquist, who's a, a prominent skater as well, and it was going well. And so they had us dress up in these monkey suits and do like a whole routine dressed up as monkeys to match the aesthetic of the orangutan, Obviously, right? as you do. And Bob used to have a loop ramp that was attached to his half pipe that we had done in the past, you know, a full, like complete Hot Wheels loop. And we had done it in the past, but it had been really weathered since the last time we had done it. And he and I had been riding a different loop right up until that, that point that was on my tour, uh, the Bumu Hucksham. So those things are important in the, in the context of this because as we were skating in these orangutan suits, not wearing helmets, by the way, because, you know, we had to have the, we had to have the full getup. Sure. I think it was my great idea. They said, oh, we got to do a monkey loop. Let's do the monkey loop. And so we went over to the backside of the ramp and we started trying his loop. And I should have known something was wrong when Bob fell on his first attempt of his own loop that he used to do daily, you know, with, with his eyes closed. And then I went and tried it and realized that I didn't have enough speed. So I sort of came off the wall, but I made it around. So I, I was, I was able to slide to safety. And for some reason that didn't deter us. We were all amped up to do it. And um, on my next attempt, I did the number one mistake of a loop that I should have known better because I'd been doing it for, I don't know, 10 years up to that point in my life. And basically I pumped too hard with my legs going through the, the first radius. And when you do that, 
you bring yourself off the wall and you have nowhere to go except for straight up and then all the way down. Like I said, it was a rookie mistake. I, I pumped through the transition, found myself flipping in the air, didn't know where I was. The next thing I know, I woke up in an ambulance. <gasps> and how, like, how many feet is that that you're falling? Uh, the, the loop itself is 14 feet. I'm tripping. I, I didn't even know that they um, made so skateboarding loops. I, the irony, the irony of the of the loop is that the safest place to fall is at 12 o'clock because your momentum will carry you around the ramp and you'll be able to stick to the wall and slide around. So I came off the wall just after three o'clock, so to speak, and that made my momentum stay carried me upwards oh to the top gosh. and then straight down. I remember the first thing that I felt. I maybe that's what kind of woke me up was as they were as they were lifting me into the ambulance, I said, oh, my, my side really hurts. And I, and, and I remember the uh, paramedic saying, oh, we'll x-ray that. And then I uh, found out later that day that I had broken my pelvis and that I was going to be in bed for quite a while. Whoa. What is the recovery from that like? I was in bed for probably, I think, six to eight weeks. The worst part about that is not being idle. It's that your pelvis is central to everything in your body, right? In terms of your bone structure and your nerves. And so if you do anything at all that requires exertion, I mean, I'm talking about down to coughing or sneezing, your entire body freezes up and and, and it's like this shock wave goes through you. So imagine trying to get up, take a shower, go to the bathroom. All those things are just traumatic. Um, So did you have to be in a cast? No, I didn't. Um, if, if you were to have, if I were to have shattered it, it, it might've been pieced back together, but, but it was just like a clean breakthrough. So it was going to heal fine. Have you seen Kevin Hart's newest comedy special on Netflix? I have not. Okay. So if you like stand up, it, this, it's worth your time. It's really well done. But in it, he talks about getting in a car accident and he broke his back, I think. Uh-huh. And he's talking about the recovery and having to use the bathroom for the first time. And it is you will, especially having gone through I was sobbing, crying. It's so funny. <laughs> so, so funny. Yeah. I, at the time, it just felt really painful. I'm sure. I, I couldn't find that much humor in it. But, uh, well, I think what happened was I, I, wanted to, I wanted to get back out there as soon as I could. And I jumped the gun. And so when I first started trying to walk, I had this severe limp that I was just in denial of. And uh, it took me it, it took me a good... I would say six months to feel confident on my skateboard. And then it took me about another six months to actually get my, my tricks back and, and my, my sense of confidence that I could do these things because that really rattles you. It makes you, it makes you question anything you've done for the last, you know, for me the last 30 years. What is that like when you're, and I know you've built so many incredible businesses from this world. But what is it like when your body is essentially the product? Like you're an athlete and in order for you to do this thing that you do, this all has to work. Like, what is that? What is that? The word that I'm thinking of, which is lame is like maintenance. Like what is required to be able to come back from something like that and to maintain your health in order to do what you do? Well, I think I, I think I made a big shift in what I held as a priority right then because I realized that this is not like, this shouldn't just be the only thing. Mm. And this shouldn't just be the priority is what my body is capable of doing on a skateboard. I I already had 
I had started a couple of businesses, had other sort of tangents of things that I was doing at the time, but it made me realize that if, if I want to do this, I got to just do it for my own pleasure, not because it's a living. Mm, and it, it definitely, I, I had had my share of injuries through the years, but this one in particular taught me that I love this so much. I love doing it more than anything in that I will just suffer to get back out there, even if it's not for a payday. I just wanted to get back on my skateboard. And, and I knew I was fully aware that I may not get back to where I was. And I, I may not get back to a place that's, that's good enough to be on display, that's good enough to be, say, profitable. And I didn't care. Like those were not the, those were not the goals. The goal was just to get back and ride my skateboard. And I realized that, that I, was, I love this so much that I do it for free any day of the week. That's rad. That's super rad. Is that really when the catalyst started where you, you started to expand and you built out the business? Was that the impetus for that? I'd say that was part of it, although I didn't consider myself down and out. I mean, once I, once I had most of my skills back, I realized that I, I still have like, yeah, like a I'm few still, more good years. Yeah, I me. got it. <laughs> yeah. You have done something so rare. There's lots of people who are skilled. There's a, so many athletes who don't build out the kind of global, like you've done something incredible with this that I don't feel like anybody did before you. Maybe certainly they take a, a crack at it now. Where did that even, like, how did you even know? Like, I'm going to go build this thing or have this game or do this stuff. It was little by little. I, I think that the one of the first, obviously, big breaks of success that I had, I, I had a good um, career in the 80s. I mean, good career. I made, I made a decent living. I bought a house when I was still a, a senior in high school. And so I had a, you know, I had a taste of success then. It, it fell off very quickly in the early 90s. And it wasn't until the, the late 90s when the X Games started to come into play and when I got a, an, a chance to do a video game, that's when things, that was the tipping that's point. That's so cool. And that's when the opportunities started to, they started to rise. And suddenly I felt like, wow, I, I have this opportunity, not just to be a pro skater, but to raise the awareness of skateboarding and maybe bring skateboarding into different possibilities in terms of businesses. So that's my, my siblings and I started hot clothing at the time. And that was a, the idea was that that was skate and surf wear for younger kids. Cause we all had young children at the time and we couldn't find any clothing that we thought was cool for them. I mean, back then it was all, it was all Oshkosh Bagosh. Right. It was like there's <laughs> little soldiers, you know, like they were little dolls instead of just looking like people. Right. Well, I think it's so wild. Uh, do you ever like sit with how many years uh, that, forgive me that I feel like I, I want to say something more eloquent, but like how many years you have been relevant? Like that's a rare thing. Lots of people flash in the pan, you get a moment. Like I remember being little and my older sister who was super in well she was into boys who skated she wasn't into skating herself <laughs> like I remember how obsessed they were with you and I have a 14 year old and a 12 year old my oldest boys who were like you're gonna interview Tony Hawk like that's freaking crazy that's insane like what do you think that is that you have like through time you've continued to show up and sort of be the face of this thing it wasn't necessarily intentional. It was just more that I never quit. 
that is my only secret is that I, you know, I pushed through, including those injuries, I pushed through and some people maybe knew me from the eighties and like, like you, maybe there are parents that knew me and then their kids see me now and, and I'm still doing it. I, you know, I think it's just more that, well, for, for one, people are just surprised more that I can do it at my age, which is, that's fine, whatever it takes. I think also with the success of my video game, that really is the catalyst for all this. Mm. For, for my name recognition, absolutely. Does that feel like serendipity to you or is that something that you called your shot and created the opportunity? I think a little bit of both. I definitely hustled in those days. I, I, I tried to, to get a video game going with a PC programmer years before we did Tony Hawk's Pro Skater. So I was already trying to get in the mix because I love video games. And I thought that there was a big void in the marketplace in terms of anything that represented skateboarding well. And also there hadn't been a game in years that had any, you know, the last game before we did ours was Skate or Die. Which oh my was God, I remember that. Oh my gosh, we had yeah. a Commodore 64. That was our first computer, the whole family. I bought one just for that game. That's so rad. Building out this idea, like you're like, there, there's a hole in this market, like somebody should do this, this thing doesn't exist. Did, did people get it? Did they, meaning when I say people, I mean people in the video game industry, people on your team, agents, managers, whoever, did people understand what it could be? Or was that you sort of going no. like, okay. I didn't know it could be what it became, mm. honestly. No, I don't think anyone could have predicted the success that we had. When we were pitching, when I was pitching the game with the pro, with the PC developer, we came up against so much negativity that it, he just got discouraged and was over it. Because the the... The console manufacturers, the publishers all said, look, skateboarding is not popular. Why would a skateboarding game be popular? And we were trying to explain that it's it's a different type of gameplay because it's more free roaming and it's more based on your own style of doing it. And they just didn't get it. But when, when uh, I got to work with Activision, they already had the game engine developed. So I came on sort of later, the, the, their, their game was happening regardless of my involvement. And then when I came on, I realized that I was able to give them guidance in terms of tricks, uh, skaters, locations, goals. And when we combined forces, we at, at least knew that the skateboard, the skateboarders would appreciate the game. That's, that was my goal. Like if my you were an actual the, skater, a, yeah. An actual skater would be inspired to buy a PlayStation. That was it. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't think that we'd even get to do a sequel. What's so uh, amazing that you're describing and I think is so inspiring for me and for listeners is that, like, I think years and years and years ago, I was an event planner. I used to design fancy parties and I started out with people having a budget of like $5 and my vision for what I wanted to do in the design space never matched anybody's budget. And I went to a conference once and someone who was very successful said, design your dream events and someday you will find a client who can afford it. And I feel like you design, like you saw in your head what this thing could be. And then Oprah has this quote I love. She says, there's no such thing as luck. There's only preparation meeting opportunity at a moment in time. And I feel like if you hadn't had, if you hadn't worked on this thing, if you hadn't dreamed it, if you hadn't thought about what it was, you don't go into that meeting with Activision and have like this like moment in time. And I think that's so inspiring for listeners who are like dreaming of something or want the thing. You have to keep 
visualizing what it is you're trying to build. Yeah, but also, and keep chasing it. Like, I mean, making connections is such a huge part of it. And going into the, the unknown and the uncomfortableness where it's like, you're not going to know until you try. Right. And I think that so many people maybe have great ideas like that, but they're waiting for something to come to them. Well, that the guy who was designing it with you, did he like peace out on the project? Out. It was it was years before the, uh, Activision. But so still, he, oh, he said, he, I remember the conversation that he said, look, I have to go make a living. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> but I think Fair. that your journey won't end here because at the very least, you're making connections in the video game industry. And if someone wants to do a game, your name is going to be known that it's, it's available or that you're interested. That's and he was right. Man. Okay. I got off on a huge tangent because that was a really exciting conversation. Thank you for indulging (laughs) me. So you, you broke your pelvis. You have a really long recovery process. The next injuries, are they post pelvis break or did some of them happen before? No, I've jumped. I I went in order of severity. So I'm jumping around in time for sure. Okay. Although this injury was probably my next biggest in my lifespan, but, and it happened afterward. It happened actually um, in June. I dislocated these two fingers right here. You see how they're yeah. the kind of fat? What happened? Uh, so I dislocated above here and here. I was skating a backyard pool with my son, Riley. Oh, man. I was actually just doing a trick where it's, it's, the trick was is me sort of setting up on top of the coping to come back in for to get more speed. And I was thinking so far ahead that I didn't realize as I dropped my board down that my 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 trucks, you when you're like, I don't have a skateboard trucks. I have skateboards here, yes. But it's like the metal. Um, so when you're on your truck, say yeah. this is the this is the the ramp right here. Right. When you're on your truck and you come in, if you let your wheels drop, you end up hanging up on the back truck, like your wheels on top. Right. Super common mistake for people who don't necessarily skate pools and for in my defense, the coping was much bigger than usual. And I was thinking too far ahead. And the next thing I know, I found myself flying towards the flat bottom without my skateboard. And I put my hands down to brace my impact. And my hand was just sort of bent too far. And these fingers just popped out. Oh, but I didn't notice that it was, it was, it was such a hard hit that I didn't feel that. I just knew that I, I like hurt my side. I hurt my elbow. And then as I, as I tried to assess the damage, I looked and my fingers were both pointing out in different directions. Oh my God. And I had never actually seen that on my fingers. So I thought I broke them. So just because I, I got to back up real fast. What do you just go find an empty pool or you have an empty pool at the ready? Like um, <laughs> This one, it's in, in the lore of skateboarding. This was called a permission pool. And so it's someone's backyard pool that they have granted us permission to skate because it's empty. Right. Okay. Doesn't feel like something that happens to the average skateboarder. Feels like maybe if it's you, someone's like, all right, if you scar up the bottom, it feels fine. I, let's just say I wasn't the first to skate it, okay. but I, I, I think that I, I got I got a pass. Okay. Sure. Okay. So um, how old is your son? Is he a teenager, a little guy? Uh, he's 28. Oh, okay. <laughs> so he his reaction to your fingers. He's, well, he's my oldest, but oh, he's okay. one of my sons. He, he ended up having to drive me to the hospital. I said, did that freak him out? Or he was like, we, we hurt ourselves all the time. We're skateboarders. A little bit of both. He, he's had a share of injuries for sure. But I think neither one of us had seen this sort of strange uh, visual of fingers right. going different directions. So right. 
He was a little freaked out, but I think that my attitude calmed him down because I was, you know, I was flipping off the camera with my finger going this way. <laughs> um, but it was weird because it was right when, well, it was, it was right when COVID was taking hold. Surging, and yeah. so to go to the hospital, you had to come in with a mask and no visitors, obviously. Right. And so he just watched me go into the hospital. And then I said, I'll be in touch, I guess. So <laughs> he and his buddy went to, he and his buddy went to In-N-Out. As you and do. And by the time they came back, I was walking out of the hospital with my fingers back in place. Okay, that's good. Did they at least get you a double-double? You know what? They didn't. I didn't think about that. <laughs> that's so rude. Yeah, but I forced them to, uh, I, I remember I forced them to stop at Sugarfish on our way home. Do you know nice. Sugarfish? Yeah. Yeah, the that- same day I dislocated my fingers, I was able to use chopsticks to eat Sugarfish. So I thought I'm going to be okay. You're good. Yeah. And the like, will the swelling go down in your knuckles or this is like, I don't think so. No, according to my doctor, I have all my strength back. I can't quite make a a balled up fist like Mm. my other hand, but he said the swelling most likely will just remain. All right. That is. (laughs) So the next one actually leaves a scar too. The next one is I, I broke my elbow and I have two screws that are still in my elbow that are kind of stick out right here. So when you, when you have to go through security, does that. That's probably no, a very, they're very small. question. Okay. They're very small. <laughs> okay. So how did I you did think that them? when I first, when it first happened, let's see what happened. We were shooting, it was uh 1998, I believe. And we were shooting a gap commercial and I don't know, there was just something in the air that day. We, uh, we got in a car wreck on the way not my fault, but this, this kid changed lanes blindly, hit my car, then bounced into a super nice uh, Mercedes, like the highest end Mercedes. And you could tell that he was just, you know, it was going to be a problem. And so we went, my car was, was a little bit uh, scuffed up, but it was okay. And then I don't know why I'm telling this long story, but I ran up to make sure that the, the Mercedes driver was okay. And it was this girl. And we were almost, I was almost late to my shoot to the gap. And I said, look, I, I can't, I'm sorry, I can't say I have to shoot. I'm not going to this commercial. I'm going to be late, but I'll take your info, info down. And she's like, I'm going to that commercial. She was also in it. <laughs> oh, how crazy. And so she's I like, said, I'll okay, well, I'll tell them you're going to be late. <laughs> That's wild. And then we found out later that she was, uh, at the time, George Clooney's girlfriend. And that was George Clooney's car that the guy totaled. Oh, well, he's, he has money. He's fine. He can, <laughs> he can yeah, figure well. that out. But anyway, um, that, so wait, that's how, how the day started. Elbow? Okay. That's how the day started. And then we were shooting a few tricks and I was shooting a trick where I was going over what we call a launch box or a fun box where it's, it's a ramp on one side and then just a landing on the other, you know, kind of like a small evil Knievel thing. And I didn't have to get this tricky, but I was, just, my pride took over and I, and I tried a trick that's a little bit harder and I made it. And then they said, Oh, we, uh, we didn't get the shot. The camera didn't move fast enough. Can you do it again? And and I knew right then I was like, I'm probably not going to make it again. And then I came up short. So when I landed on the landing, my trucks again hit the top and then my body just flew to the flat. Oh man. And as soon as I got up, I saw that when I, I straightened my elbow, there was something just sort of pushing out like that. Oh. And, uh, and the thing that was, it was funny because my, my first concern at the time was not for my safety, but I was, I was struggling financially right then. And a commercial literally was changing my life in terms of having that opportunity and maybe getting royalties or residuals from the, the shoot. 
And my first thought was, I'm not going to be in the commercial. I'm not going to oh, get residuals. Wow. But I was lucky. And were that, you in the commercial? Yeah, they already got a couple shots of me, and I ended up in the commercial. Good. And it saved me. I mean, I, I was like, I was struggling to pay my mortgage at the time. Isn't it wild how? I mean, I think in all of our stories of of working and success and what it looks like from the outside, there is a perspective of times in your life where other people would be like, man, this person's killing it. And like behind the scenes, you're like, well, I hope I can pay rent this month. It was, uh, it was here. No, I was, I, I remember getting the first residual check and it was just like, yes. <laughs> Thank God. While still in a cast. <laughs> right, right. Of the three you've mentioned so far, which was the most painful? Was that the pelvis? Pelvis always. Okay. Yeah. Okay. In terms of longevity too. Okay. All right. What is your fourth injury? My fourth one is um, my very first major injury when I was 11 years old. I fell from the top of a pool and got a concussion and knocked my front teeth out. And I don't remember. I, I remember the fall, but I don't remember what happened after. And, and someone found me laying unconscious in the pool. Oh my mark. gosh. Wait, so are were they baby teeth or these were permanent teeth that had to be No, they were my they were permanent. So um so but wait, I mean honestly teeth? since then I've knocked these front teeth, I've knocked them out uh four times since. No. And the best part about knocking your teeth out when you're an adult is that you get to choose the size and the color of the teeth going forward. You're tripping me out right now. That is wild. So two, Four times. And then these two are have caps. Oh my gosh. That is wild. So you're you're a little boy. You were skateboarding though. You didn't just like skateboarding, fall. yeah. I was at a skate park. It was it was my first major fall. And also I was wearing a helmet that I I thought was cool because I saw the older kids wearing them and I thought it looked cool. And what I didn't realize at the time was that it's it was the most unsafe helmet you could wear because it was just all for looks. And oh. my dad made me throw it away immediately. What does it look like today in terms of safety versus when you were little? Because I feel like there's so much more information now about traumatic brain injuries and how important it is to keep everything safe. Like, what are the precautions that exist today that didn't back then? Well, the equipment is just much better. That's that's yeah. the bottom line. The equipment that I was using... I mean, I was using volleyball pads, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and this helmet that was just more like a cap. So nowadays, I mean, I've, I've hit my head with the current helmet that I wear now. And the helmet I wear is, is called Triple Eight. That's the brand. And I've hit my head extremely hard and been and still been right there with every, everyone, you know. Got and it. I've, I've, I've had enough concussions through my life that I know what it takes and I know how it feels. And the equipment now is just... So it's exponentially safer than it used to be. That's awesome. I was talking to Laird Hamilton about surfing and the the things that exist for surfers now that didn't, you know, when he was coming up. Oh, it's up amazing. Yeah, I mean, the, the idea that you could just pull and float up. Right, right. There's like those vests that don't inflate until, you know, you're under right. a certain pressure so that if you get knocked unconscious, it'll take you up. It's amazing. So I went, I got to go toe and serving with Laird Oh, when was that? It was around 2001, Stop. maybe? Yeah, almost that 20 years like ago. terrifying, terrifying. Well, here's the thing. To him, it was a small day. Right. So he just thought it'd be fun for me to try it out. But what he didn't know was on my scale of surf, it was massive. Oh, my. And so he towed me in. And, and yeah, I was wearing a life vest, but not. it wasn't the kind that inflated. And I remember 
I, I, the first wave I wrote was the biggest wave I've ever been on in my life for sure. And I was extremely excited and I made it out and, and I was like elated and, you know, he's just laughing at me because that's just a day in the park for him. And then right. uh, the next wave, I tried to get a little bit more daring and I tried to get in the, in the tube and it just, it hit me in the head and I rolled and I remember rolling and then, and then getting pushed down a shelf and still underwater and then down another shelf. And when I finally came up, I mean, I was in a bit of a panic and he was two feet away from me on the jet ski. And, oh. and I just said, man, that was scary. I, I kept going down the shelves and he goes, yeah, I've had my worst hold downs here. <laughs> Were you guys in California? No, it was in Maui. Oh, okay. In Hawaii. Oh my God. But I mean, just the idea that, you know, you're, you're going with the absolute triple back black diamond expert of the sport. I think I didn't realize the gravity of that until I left where I was like, I, I had no business being there. <laughs> right. But then there is something cool about this. I feel like we experience this in sports or in business or in life that when you get around someone who is so much better than you at something, you level up without even being conscious of it. Because there's I, no way you would have been doing that without no, him. Not at all. No. And no way would I have not ever paddled into a way that big or considered it. Right. But you're with someone, sure. like I always think of this in business. I've been an entrepreneur for a very long time. And the first time I went to a business conference and this guy next to me was like, what was your annual revenue last year? And I was, I felt like he asked me to like take my clothes off. I was like, what, how dare you? <laughs> and he was so confident. And I was like, oh, I think we did 750,000. This was a really long time ago. And he's like, oh, I said, well, what about you? What's your annual revenue? And he's like, um, just cut, we just topped um, 18 million. And I like it, that brief interaction, I had this exchange with this guy completely shifted my worldview. I was like, oh my God, I'm playing so small. <laughs> and it wasn't until I got around someone who had achieved more than me that it ever occurred to me that I was capable of more. Oh, that's cool. Well, uh, let's put it this way. I didn't take up a career in um, toe and surfing after that. <laughs> right. But, but I was you glad to have the experience. It. I did it, yes. You did it. And, and you're it. right. That's I probably so wouldn't right. have been able to do it with anyone else. Yeah. I mean, just safety-wise, it feels smart yeah. to do it with yes. Laird Hamilton. <laughs> okay. We're at the last injury. This is the least painful, I think. Oh. Right? Yeah. Um, is this well, our okay. last one? Yeah. Yeah, the last one. So let's put it this way. At this point, when I hit my shin with a skateboard it's it's so numb to the impact that I really don't know the severity of it until I look at it. And so I've just had countless stitches and I'll try to show you here. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, no. Oh my stitches for days. <laughs> I mean, even that, that's just from rubbing. That's not even, that's not stitches. That's just happened recently from snowboarding, but, and a couple of them go all the way down into my sock line. That's just one leg. <laughs> At one point, okay, what? At, at one point, I went to the I went to an urgent care to get stitches because I didn't want to wait at a hospital. And the doctor had already seen me a number of times, and he looked at me and he said, "I, I don't have any more skin to pull over." Oh my god! I, I can't. It was almost like I, I've given up on you. <laughs> it's like it's just gonna have to heal with a scar. Yeah, it was I, more I like, "Please like, don't come here anymore. Thank you for your business. Right. You might want right. to find someone else." Yeah. Oh my gosh. I, what trips me out about that, number one, I know this sounds so naive, but it trips me out that you're still getting hurt because you're an expert in this field. And I think <laughs> we tend to believe like, oh, you have this down that you're invincible in this way. Oh no, and that's what and it takes. It, that's what it takes to keep 
to keep progressing. Now, dive into that for a second. So meaning you've got to challenge yourself physically. You have to be willing to get hurt. Like, tell me, tell me oh, what that sure. means. Oh, for sure. I mean, you've got to be willing to, well, you've got to be willing to put up risk for any kind of success. I mean, I believe that in, in all walks of life, but especially in skateboarding and you've got to be, you've got to have the resolve that you're going to get through that if you want to progress or evolve or, or improve your skills. And sometimes it's traumatic. I mean, I've, you know, like I said, these are just five injuries, but, but a lot of these are very debilitating. And if you're willing to push through it, I mean, I think, I think that I see a lot of people, especially in their adult life, they said, oh, I tried skateboarding once. I fell, broke my wrist. That was it. And a lot of people, for a lot of people, that, that is it. They don't, they don't want to push through that. They, they, you know, they, they didn't decide that they were going to be committed to this thing. And I, and I understand that. But, but some people were, are willing to risk it all because they have a dream to do it. That's, that's where I am. There, there's a great quote, and I don't know who says it, uh, but it's something like, you're rewarded in public for what you practice in private. Like these things that you do and have done thousands and thousands and thousands of times like someone sees you perform sees you at the x game sees you doing something and there's no unless i think you're uh you're a skater there's no awareness of how much effort went into that one trick that lasted seconds oh for sure years sometimes years what are, what are your thoughts for people who are working on whether it's an athletic endeavor a business something in their life that they're working toward who feel frustrated because they are practicing they're doing these things they're working so hard but they're not getting recognition for that thing yet I think well I think it's more that you've got to enjoy the small successes along the way. You can't just always be fixated on the, the big success or the big accolade because those ones are, they're few and far between. And also if that's all you're going for, you're going to lose your motivation once you get there. And I think the idea Why? is that you want to Ooh, celebrate, good. you want to celebrate these small successes and, and building up your skills and, and, and developing your craft because that way you're going to stay motivated to keep doing it better and better. Even if you're number one in competition, whatever, the only way you're going to have any longevity is to keep trying to improve it. Mm. That's really interesting. The idea of focusing on the craft, because when you started out, this was not a business, (laughs) right? Like you weren't doing this. It was more of a scourge. (laughs) Right. You were, you were marked that old, as, um, yeah, you, you were definitely marked as an outcast immediately for riding a skateboard. I had to hide my yeah, skateboard from in school so that I didn't get beat up. There, I can't remember who the commercial was for, but there was that great commercial like a million years ago where it was, what if we treated other athletes the way we treat skaters? Oh, yeah, yeah. That, that was the first that, Nike yeah. campaign for skateboarding. Nike. Okay. I was like, there's something. Yeah, that's so rad. Uh, I have a foundation for public skate parks called the Skate Park Project. And oh, tell us um, about that. that's, that's definitely my, my passion and, and where I, I try to focus all my philanthropy. Basically we help to support public skate parks in underserved areas. And we have helped to develop almost a thousand skate parks now over the last 20 years and given away cool. over $10 million. And um, it's the work I'm most proud of. That's really cool. If people want to find more about that, how can they help? Theskateparkproject.org. Very cool. And on social, where can we find you if we want to hang out with you on social media? I'm at Tony Hawk, wherever wherever you're 
wherever you're spending your time, you can probably find me there. Awesome. Tony, it was so nice to meet you, man. I hope we get to someday shake hands in real life. Your Faves Faves is hosted by me, Rachel Hollis. The show is produced by Chelsea Harfouche and edited by Andrew Weller with production support from Sterling Coates. Cameron Berkman is our executive producer. Your Faves Faves is a 3% chance production. Mm-hmm.